from PRX. Studio 360. This is the place in the northwest of England. It's ace, it's the best, and the songs that we sing from the stands from our band set the whole planet shaking. I'm Kurt Anderson, and that is a writer named Tony Walsh reading his poem, This is the Place. Reading it at a vigil on Tuesday in Manchester, England, his hometown. The night before, the jihadist suicide bomber had walked into the Ariana Grande concert at the Manchester Arena, detonating himself, killing 22 other people, many of them young girls. One was eight years old. Unfathomable. There's something about targeting a concert in Manchester that makes this act of terror somehow even more horrific, more clash of civilizations sinister. Manchester is a city that has produced many, many great bands over the last 50 years, such as Herman's Hermits. The Buzzcocks. The Smiths. New Order. And Oasis. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you. By now, you should have somehow realized what you gotta do. I don't believe that anybody. All those bands started playing in Manchester. Young people would shuffle into venues, and before long, the bands got popular enough to end up on the Breakfast Club soundtrack or played at your prom. Manchester's the kind of place, if you're somebody like Eve Barlow, where you could go off to college to become a lawyer, but then find out that all the bands playing in the city are a lot more interesting than contract law. My mind was kind of elsewhere the entire time I was there. I was just always out at shows and learning about as much music as I could whenever possible. And it's kind of part of the reason why you go to Manchester, because the musical heritage of Manchester is really you know, part of the global fabric. Barlow managed to get her law degree, but instead of practicing law, she became a music journalist. And she just published an article in The Telegraph about how, as somebody who went to so many concerts in Manchester as a teenager, the horror was hitting her. I think what people are trying to wrap their heads around in terms of the Ariana Grande uh, audience is that it's largely an audience of teens and of, you know, the LGBTQ community and both communities really do turn to pop music for some kind of salvation and community. And a pop concert is somewhere where they can actually feel total joy and security and safety and and escape, basically, for, for a couple of hours. And um, it's it's really unfathomable to think that 
that's now a space where that that isn't you know that isn't safe for that and um that it's now under threat and I think that was one of the things that so immediately struck me is that teenage pop fans who are largely female and members of the queer community have enough to be fearful of in this world without having to be afraid to go and watch their favourite pop star sing their favourite pop songs with a bunch of their friends. Right. Uh, one, one imagines, and as the father of daughters, I imagine these some of these teenage girls going to their first concert and being out alone for the first time and having that independence and and then this uh, terror happens uh, makes it even more uh, awful to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we all know what it was to go to our first concert and uh, how you know <laughs> how preparing for that process is. You're waiting for it to come around for months and thinking about how you're going to get there and. No parent who is deciding whether or not to let their kid go to a concert is thinking about that level of consequence. And unfortunately, now that's become a factor that will be hard to ignore. But I think the point is that we have to give young girls uh, credit and they're incredibly resilient human beings and... um, and as adults, we should respect that and be re- incredibly resilient for them as well on their behalf. Well said. Uh, the, the, the novelist uh, Howard Jacobson, who's from Manchester, uh, wrote uh, in, in the New York Times that Manchester, quote, is a city possessed of a rare vigor and a music arena lies close to the heart of that vigor. Uh, it sounds like from your experience in Manchester that you agree with that. Oh, absolutely. It's the nail on the head. Yeah, totally. Manchester is music. You know, they're married to each other. And um, I don't think Manchester is also a city of defiance that has been through a lot. Um, You know, certainly I remember the IRA bombings in 1996 when I was a kid and watching that unfold on TV and the city, you know, how it recovered. It's just it's phenomenal walking around that part of Manchester now and seeing it thrive um, and seeing how they react when faced with such atrocities. And yeah, I think similarly, you know, Manchester has too much music in its blood to not continue to fill its venues every single night of the week with the most exciting, thrilling experiences you could ever have. And I know that people in Manchester tonight will go out seeking for the night of their lives. Like, they'll do it. They'll do it every night because that's just, that's just who the people of Manchester are. Soft targets is a term we hear a lot these days, as opposed to hard targets, which are things like government buildings and military installations where security levels are high. Soft targets are places that are filled with ordinary people enjoying life, the opposite of being on guard, people relaxing at movie theaters and sports events and at music venues. Remember, it was also a music hall and some nearby cafes where dozens of people were killed in the Paris attacks a year and a half ago. It was after that awful night that I spoke with Rafia Zakaria, who's a Pakistani-American journalist who was then writing for Al Jazeera America. 
She said that in Paris, the terrorists had decided to target fun, which at first seems like a trivial thing. But she says that fun is essential to the soul of any city. When you eviscerate fun and when you do it in a way that is so visible and hence traumatizes not simply the people who are there, but all the rest of us who are watching this, you say that that part of human existence does not have the justification to exist. Fun is a delicate thing and you can create secure environments, but they are likely no longer spontaneous or fun because once fun is tainted by paranoia, it's no longer the same thing. For a while, Manchester won't be the same either. But people will go to concerts again. They will go out seeking fun and culture and living life. Of course they will. Because this is a place that has been through some hard times. Oppressions, recessions, depressions and dark times. But we keep fighting back with greater Manchester spirit, northern grit, northern wit and greater Manchester lyrics in these hard times again. And there's hard times again. There's hard times again in these streets of our city. But we won't take defeat and we don't want your pity because this is the place where we stand strong together with a smile on our face, Mancunians forever. Coming up, loving the music of a husband and wife duo, but also wondering why they're husband and wife. They were an incongruous duo. I think that part of the fascination is why are these two people together? Roseanne Cash admits to loving an act she maybe shouldn't love. That's still ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. What else should I try while I'm in New York? Mm, Indian food? Mm, I don't really like curry. Racist. I said I don't like curry food. I didn't say I don't like curry people. All right, I was kidding earlier, but the phrase curry people, definitely racist. That's Aziz Ansari in his Emmy Award-winning Netflix comedy, Master of None with the actress Alessandra Mastronardi. In the show, Ansari plays Dev, who's an actor living in New York City most of the time, trying to figure out his career and his love life, which is really not unlike the actual life of Ansari and of Alan Yang, who co-created and co-writes the show. Yang and Ansari became friends, working together on the NBC series Parks and Recreation, 
where, Alan says, the writer's room was really a seven-year-long masterclass in creating TV scripts. Motivation, stakes, turns, escalation. I mean, stuff like that where— For the characters. For 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 yeah. any episode. Yeah, 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 for any episode. Yeah. You know, if the story's not working, um, just go back to those four basic things. What does the character want? What does he or she have to lose if he or she right. fails? Um, what are the twists and turns yeah. that happen, so and then how does it get worse? <laughs> well, yeah, but then you see the then yeah. you then you get to try it, right? Right? Then you get to try it, right? And then you get to apply it to what's happening. Um, and all of and and watching other people who are good at their jobs and who are good at um, not only pitching jokes but breaking story. That to me, like breaking story, to me was. I felt like I, I went from a zero to a, a non-zero. And explain what point. that means. Figuring out what happens. Yes. That's it. That's it's, it. It's, it's, it's the plot. Yes. It's a complicated way of saying, okay, well, this is a story about uh, Leslie Nope uh, throwing a harvest festival for the town. Okay, what does that mean? Well, now what happens? Right? <laughs> then what happens? Yeah, then yeah. what happens? Then what happens? Well, I'm organizing this huge harvest festival, and normally this is the kind of thing I would love to do, but... I'm just feeling really tired. I think maybe my allergies are acting up. I've already vomited like five times today. Why does it happen? You know, where's the conflict? Where are the twists and turns? And that's something that, you know, some people probably learn earlier than that, but I learned a lot of it on Parks and Rec. Leslie, go home. You're sick. I'm not sick. It's just allergies. Come on, guys. Just let me in there. No, you can't come in you're here. You're not coming in. No, Leslie, you, you look tired and you're all sweaty. You look tired and you're all sweaty all the time. What's your excuse? You want to go there, Jerry? No. That is Amy Poehler with Jim O'Hare and Aziz Ansari in Parks and Recreation, where you worked as a writer for all seven of its seasons. So then you and Aziz create Master of None, uh, the first season of which got great reviews and won awards. So did that make you think that for this second season, um, you didn't have to work so hard to make people aware of you and, and you could do things that are, are, are different? I think doing something different was a, was a huge thing for us. If you could pinpoint a formula for episodes in season one, we wanted to deviate from that formula. Let's not just recycle plots and re- recycle themes from season one. Let's try to push ourselves. But and- that's what TV does. <laughs> TV's different. It's a whole new world. Yeah. Um, we wanted it to be 10 different little movies. You yeah. Know? Well, speaking of little movies, uh, season two opens with Aziz's character, Dev, going to Italy. Uno, due, tre, formaggio. And and there's a lot of Italian yeah. in, in this season and English subtitles. I guess that's a Netflix freedom thing, right? It's incredible. Yeah, there's there's stuff throughout the season that I can't believe we got away with. And the idea is, can we trust the audience? And it's sort of having this faith in the audience and respecting them, respecting their intelligence and saying, yeah, they'll go with us on this journey if we do our jobs. Just don't think that they need their hand held through everything is, well, it, is, 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 our, is, our, is our hope. I felt my hand had been dropped as I, when I – speaking of getting away with anything. You have an yeah. episode called New York, I Love You. Yeah. And there's a moment, one of the, these three characters whom we've never seen before. They're yeah. not any of your main characters. There's a, there's a, a doorman dude. There's this a deaf woman and then this taxi driver. And you go, <laughs> what? Huh? And during the deaf woman's thing, you just like – you don't just have her not be able to hear. There is no sound. For 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm going to put spoiler bracket warnings around all of that. Avert your ears yes, yes. if you don't want to hear about yeah. it. But 
Yeah, that was a huge leap of faith. And it really excited us. I really us. thought my computer was broken. Yes. So we came up with the idea of following these different characters. And then on top of that, I was like, well, it would be interesting if one of them were deaf. I don't see a lot of main characters and protagonists of shows who are deaf. And, and they have such interesting specifics to their lives. And, and uh, let's try it. And my pitch was we should have the audio drop out. And I think Netflix yeah. was a little nervous about that. <laughs> and And so – we're like, let's, let, let's do this. We're, we'll record audio on the day and we'll yeah. have all the audio. We'll have room tone. We'll have normal audio right. if, you, if, if we want it. And there was no better version than when it was completely your completely it makes you her, watch. Yeah, you're, you lean in. And yeah. so the proof was when we screened it because we screen all these episodes in movie theaters just to get people's reactions huh. like a movie does. And we make notes and Aziz and I listen to the audience. And, and when we screen New York, I Love You, I was a little bit nervous. We'll see. Will the audience go on this journey with us? And you know, the first section did did well. And then, you know, it goes into the part where you're in uh, the cashier's point of view of a character played by Trishel Edmonds. And, Who is the deaf woman. Yes. And and the audio drops out. And I've literally heard some people, you know, I saw people looking around. Yes. Elbowing each other. Is there a mistake, et cetera. And within 30 seconds, people are leaning and watching. And it's one of the biggest comedy scenes of the entire season. And it killed. That episode is really, really about non-stars, kind of random characters in these anonymous jobs. Uh, one of them has a disability. None of them are white. I mean, that that seems like, look, we're gonna be we're gonna be good. We're gonna be pro-social. Yeah, I don't think of it that way. I think I wouldn't say we went into that episode being like, we're going to do diversity. <laughs> I think it's a little bit more about empathy. I think it was more about what is that guy's life like? I don't know. And it's and it's just the realization that. Everyone is the protagonist of their own story. Right. Everyone is the star of their own movie. And if you're a person who happens to be one of these people in this episode of the show, you haven't had any movies made about you. Right. Or you've had very few. Like for that episode specifically, because it's not about our dumb privileged lives, we interviewed a bunch of doormen. We interviewed a bunch of cab drivers. We interviewed some deaf actors and actresses, and and they told us their stories, and we put a lot of them in the episode. Right. You don't begin with an issue that we're going to Oh, yeah. We really tried not to do that, because that was, you know, like I said earlier, I think people, if they were to to make an SNL parody of the show, would have been like, oh, yeah, Dev... Uh, something happens to Dev. He talks about it with his friends at at an ice restaurant, and then uh, something else happens. And then by the end, he's like two percent more woke. And it's like oh, yeah, that's yeah. not like we didn't want to do that for every episode. It's like yeah, we do talk about those issues, but I don't. Hopefully, not in an overbearing way. I yeah, think yeah, I think sure. you know, there's a lot of relationship episodes, career episodes, and and then some experiments, like some sort of more experimental episodes. Yeah, the, one of the episodes is about the. The Allen character, Brian, uh, and and his father is dating. His father is no longer married to his mother, and he's dating it. Is, is was that whole premise a thing out of your life, out of your dad's life? Uh, I haven't told my dad about this yet. Really? <laughs> but, Let's call but, him. <laughs> uh, I would say it's very loosely based on reality, and so yeah, my dad is on eHarmony, and you know he dates, and he has a fairly active dating life. I mean, I don't think he's dating up a storm, but he does. And we just kind of talked to each other and said, uh, Aziz and I said, well, when's the last time you saw the love life of a, you know, 70-year-old retired Asian-American guy, you know, depicted in a TV so, show? So often. It's yeah, such a cliche. You know, it's like we see enough of like overprivileged 30-year-old yeah. guys living in, you know, urban areas having fancy meals and going on dates. Like, we've seen that, but this is happening, man. This is real. Now, I mean, Netflix, they obviously know exactly how many people watch every show, everything they do. 
but ratings don't exist. Do they say, oh, this episode did better or this – do they do you, do they even tell you how shows how your show did? They told me 100 million people watched the show is 100% of the people. <laughs> no, it, they don't tell me anything. Really? They don't, they don't tell me anything as far as I know, uh they don't tell David Fincher what house of cards gets. They don't tell like they don't tell anybody what anybody gets. Which is interesting because even HBO, I mean HBO has ratings, yeah. people, you know. Yeah, I love it, man. Here's the thing. So, when you don't have ratings, you don't wake up the next day and say, wow, did we get a 1.9? Oh, we got a 1.7. You know, there, that is a never-ending stress. And that's real. You yeah. know, that is a real stress. Yeah. And and instead, in a way, you know, what the reviews are kind of the ratings and what people tell you are the ratings and your own satisfaction with what you made is the ratings. And then if you get canceled or picked up, is <laughs> also the ratings. But, but how weird that you don't have any idea. Yeah. I'm cool with it. Uh, what I was going to say is like, yeah. look, we're not making the Super Bowl of shows. Right. This isn't like, right. a, you know, this isn't CSI. You know, it's 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 a very specific. Not it's may not be for everyone. I think it, you know, it's a, a wide variety of people can enjoy it, but it's our very personal show. It's a very bespoke, personal, small show yeah. for us. So uh, you'd rather have 900 people really, really love it than yeah. 90,000 who Yeah, I think it's more like 9 million. No, that's my guess. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Alan Yang, it has been a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Had a great time. Thank you, Kurt. Alan Yang is co-creator of Master of None. Its second season is now on Netflix. My pal Roseanne Cash is a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter. Given that her father was Johnny Cash, it makes sense that her music is rootsy and introspective, sometimes haunting. It was a black Cadillac drove you away Everybody's talking, but they don't have much to say But the music she makes, and one song in particular she secretly loves, are very different things. And as of right now, no longer a secret. Because for a new feature we're calling Guilty Pleasure, Roseanne told us about first hearing that song when she was young. I think my first memory is of being, you know, near the beach, in somebody's car, Riding along by the ocean and hearing Do that to me one more time Do that to me one more time by the captain and Tennille. It just felt so bright and sunny and, you know, the ocean and the sunshine and Tony Tennille. Well, I'm certainly not an expert on The Captain and Tennille, but they were both keyboard players and um, songwriters. The Captain, whose real name was Daryl Dragon, had met this woman, Tony Tennille, and they got married and they started making records together. Huge pop hits, you know, Muskrat Love, Love Will Keep Us Together. It 
was almost a tradition in the 60s and 70s that there would be husband and wife teams. In 1976, they had their own TV show following in the, you know, inimitable footsteps of Sonny and Cher. And now, the Captain Antonio. They were never cool. Never. Even at 14, I thought, this is a guilty pleasure. I'm going to have to be very careful who I share with that I like the Captain and Tennille. <laughs> well, before we make plans for a vacation, though, you've got to make me one promise. What? That we leave the keyboard at home. Can we send it a postcard? <laughs> they were an incongruous duo. I think that part of the fascination is why are these two people together? Daryl always wore a captain's hat and sunglasses, you know, and it just looked ridiculous because he was morose looking. He never sang. He's just this odd combination of goofy and creepy. How many people think I'm dumb? Raise their hand. <laughs> like, he plays these keyboards that sound really bad. Like he'll play rubber bands wrapped around his toes. And I know I'm really sound like I'm throwing a lot of shade to the captain, but you know, Tony is the one who obsesses me. You're so terrific. Mm, you never done it like that. You never been this way before. She is this kind of all-American girl from Alabama. She's got more teeth than is humanly possible. I mean, her smile is like you have to put on sunglasses. She would put on these dresses, sequin dresses, slit up to her neck, and that southern charm just oozes off her. She's got the work ethic of a song and dance man, right? She dances, she writes songs, she sings. I mean, to me, in some songs, she sounds like a cross between Dusty Springfield and Dionne Warwick. The first time you heard it, you go, well, this is a piece of pop confection. It's not anything close to the Beatles' The White Album. They're not great lyrics. It's a really overused chord progression. That one, six, minor, four, five, like millions of pop songs use that progression. My husband, John Leventhal, who's a producer, a musician, and songwriter himself, he always says, all of humanity loves the relative minor. <laughs> and um, a good songwriter will be very careful if they're going to use that progression because it's very overused. Tell it to me once again. The melody she chose to put on top of that progression 
is um, is really sweet and lifting. You know, it's got a nice lift and it's got these beautiful uh, ascending and descending lines to it. Now she modulates. You know, it's that's almost like a Broadway conceit. Like, <laughs> can can you just stay in the same key? But yeah, people love that. The sound of her kind of surrender and lack of artifice. Feels like she's wrapping you in her arms, you know. This gentle authority that she has in her voice. I mean, she's got soul. She bends notes beautifully. She's got great pitch. This song, for what it is, is the best it could have been. It's like when you look behind the curtain, there's not much there. It's her. It's her we love. Up, admit it. You love the iconic couple of the 70s, the Captain and Tennille. Tonight, it's over. Captain and Tennille uh, splitting up after nearly 40 years of marriage. Wrong. So wrong. Love, after all, did not keep them together. So we find out much later that it wasn't this strange romance that everybody thought it was, but it was kind of dark. I wonder what she would have done without the captain. Like, I think in some ways, musically, he put anchors on her feet. I wonder if she was afraid to just go for it. A woman at that time, you know, whether she thought she needed him to provide context or validity in some way. And um, I wonder if now, if it were now, if she just realized she didn't need that, that she was good enough on her own. In fact, she was better. You know, this song does not fit into my legacy or my canon or my father's canon in any way whatsoever. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and I can't see him ever listening to this for pleasure. Um, I mean, he had his guilty pleasure too, you know, songs about dead dogs and stuff like that. But he required a bit more grit. I mean, and I do too, but I'm just saying, you know, sometimes I eat too much coconut cake. Sometimes I love this song. This is my shower song. Like if I want to warm up my voice for decades, it's been... Uh, do that to me one more time. Do that to me one more time. Once is never enough with a man like you. <laughs> I don't want you down, baby. 
So, what's the song you secretly sing in the shower? Or not just the song, the movie you love, or the novel, or the app, or cultural anything that you love that might surprise people. Send a voice memo to Studio360 at WNYC.org explaining your guilty pleasure, and we may invite you on our show to talk about it. Coming up, an expert on con artists in movies and real life spots a master. Everyone gets their version of the truth. Um, That's what con artists are brilliant at doing. Donald Trump is brilliant at doing that. It's like he read the con artist's playbook, except there is no playbook. You know, it's all instinct. Maria Konnikova, host of the new podcast, The Grift. That's still ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. When I was writing my novel, Heyday, set in 1840s New York, I did a lot of research and discovered the etymology of the term con man, why we started calling swindlers that. It's because in the late 1840s, a a clever crook named William Thompson would approach New Yorkers on the street and chat them up in a friendly way and get their trust and then ask, have you enough confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? Amazingly, a lot of people fell for his trick. Less surprisingly, Thompson never returned the watches. When he was finally arrested, the trial was a huge sensation in all the new cheap penny papers. And ever since, Americans have been fascinated by confidence men. Americans like Maria Konnikova. She wrote a book about him called The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time, She's also hosting a great new podcast about cons called The Grift. It was watching a movie about con artists that got Maria interested in the subject in the first place, so I asked her to come in and share with us some of her favorite films about con artists and what she has learned from talking to real-life grifters about what makes them tick. Maria, welcome to Studio 360. Thanks so much for having me. So you have this uh, fabulous new podcast called The Grift, and uh, you had me at the name. I just love the name. Uh, So, But tell the listeners about it. It's a long-form storytelling podcast where every episode is devoted to one story of one grifter or con artist. Um, And it's really exploring not just the stories, but kind of the nature of the con and how it works, why it works, why people fall for it, um, why we're so drawn to it, and why even really intelligent people, I think, are kind of potential victims of the grift. Right. Uh, well, it, it, it's a great idea, and you, and so far uh, there's only a few episodes, but they're they're very good. And and the second one in particular is great. Uh, it's called Genuine Fake. It's about this art forger Ken Perenni, who who sold his fake paintings uh, to like the big auction houses and galleries. I have always been fascinated by this racket of art yeah. forgery in particular. Um, I want to play a minute of your story about Ken. Did you ever feel bad for the end buyer who, you know, unwittingly got this from an auction house thinking that it had been kind of vetted um, and was really buying one of your paintings? And um, did you ever think of them? Did you ever care about them? 
No, not in the least, because I always felt that they were getting the perhaps the better part of the bargain. They got a beautiful work of art. Uh, after all, aren't you supposed to be buying art for the aesthetic enjoyment as an art collector? So no, no, no regrets at all. I think they've done very well for their investment. <laughs> I'm talking to Maria Karnikova about uh, con men and grifters. Um, so that guy, uh, I don't know if he was putting it on for you, playing a character that he had no remorse, but he has no more remorse, right? No. For him, I think that he genuinely does not yeah. feel bad. He's almost gleeful, right. you know, that he that he's pulled one over, and he thinks that they're suckers. I mean, he really looks down on those people. Right. He says, if you can't tell the difference between the real thing and mine, then you don't deserve yeah. the real thing. Yeah. So before you started doing this podcast, you, you wrote the book, The Confidence Game, and you were inspired to do that after seeing um, – David Mamet's movie, House of Game? That's absolutely right. Yeah. So um, I watched that movie one night. And the difference between that movie and other movies about con artists is that the protagonist, um, the victim of the con, is really, really intelligent. It's a woman who has a PhD. She's a psychologist. So she's someone right. who should be able to read people. Let's listen to a clip from House of Games. Uh, this is where that famous psychologist played by Lindsay Krauss uh, confronts the guy who conned her who is played by Joe Mantegna. What do you want? What do you want from me? You want your 80 grand back? I can't give it back. I split it up. What do you want? Revenge? I gave you my trust. Of course you gave me your trust. That's what I do for a living. You asked me what I did for a living. This is it. Look, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt you. Really. You're a good kid. Now, whatever it is you feel that you have to do. Sit down, please. I'd love to, but I, I said to sit down. What are you going to do? Go to the cops? I may. And tell them what? What are you going to tell them, stud? That the author of the best-selling Driven, A Guide to Compulsive Behavior, gave her fortune away to some con man? You see my point? Uh, that's House of Games. So had you thought about the psychology of con artistry before this movie? No, I hadn't. Huh. But... I'd always been interested in con artists. Who isn't, in a way? You know, right. they're they're quite fascinating. But that movie, um, normally, most people think of victims of con artists as gullible, stupid, greedy. You know, you can't fool an honest man is a very famous and very wrong saying. And she she didn't fit that mold. And so that really captivated me. And I thought, how accurate is that? Could I be conned? You know, could you be conned? Right. Um, and so I wanted to read about it, and I couldn't because no one had written about it. Really? Um, there are lots of books about specific stories of con artists, but there was nothing delving into the psychology of how it works or why it works. Huh. Um, and so that there went the next three years of my life. Well, and you're, you weren't you aren't and weren't just a writer, like the the woman, the character in that movie, psychology PhD, yeah. right? Yep. Well. Dr. Konnikova, what is the psychological profile of con artists? I write about the dark triad of traits, um, psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism. And psychopathy, it's what psychopaths have, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you don't experience emotions the way that other people right. do. So you have a total lack of guilt, of remorse, of empathy. Yeah. So it's not like you're trying to say that it doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter. And, and how is that different from sociopath? Um, so it's not. So sociopathy was a term that was made up um, oh, halfway through the century because people thought that psychopathy sounded too a scary. little bit too scary. But it's the same thing. Oh, and psychologists you. only use the term psychopathy. Thank you. Good. I'm glad to know that. <laughs> so narcissism, everybody knows that one, which is essentially extreme egotism, right? 
Absolutely. It's a sense of entitlement that I'm not actually doing anything wrong because I deserve this. Right. And and Machiavellianism is not a term of art in the field, is it? It is. Really? So, yeah. Um, and it comes from Machiavelli's The Prince. Yeah. Um, it's the ability to manipulate people without their realizing they're being manipulated. Uh-huh. So they think they're doing what they want to do, but you're really pulling the strings so that they're doing what you want them to do. It's this insidious form of influence. And I think... To be a con artist, you have to be Machiavellian. There's no way around it. Part of the classic American myth is the self-made person, man. Um, also, we, we love the idea, the self-invention, you know, Horatio Alger, Jay Gatsby, and a certain kind of moxie, uh, which is, is a positive spin on con man-ism. So con men are just an embodiment of the American dream. In some ways, yes, um, in the sense that Con artists are masters of self-reinvention, especially imposters who become someone else. There is something very American in it, and cons did thrive. So one of the golden ages of the con was um, during the gold rush and kind of the the westward expansion because it's a sense of opportunity. Anything is possible. And we believe – in the American dream, we believe in things getting better. So given that history and that very American history and this set of American national character pieces that add up to it, is it – I mean, not that we're uniquely so susceptible, but particularly so? I do think there's something about Americans that make us all potentially greater victims. There are more cons we'd fall for than people from other countries just because hope is what con artists sell. And if you come from, you know, if you grew up in the Soviet Union, it would be much more difficult to run some of these cons on you because you'd say, you just raise an eyebrow and say, get out. Yeah. Um, We asked you to help us uh, put together a a kind of little library of movies about con artists in addition to the David Mamet one. Here is uh, a clip from uh, David O. Russell's uh, film, American Hustle. Uh, in which uh, Kristen Bale and Amy Adams play con artists. And these are, once again, characters uh, based on real real folks. Like me, she learned to survive and reinvent herself. She knew she had to reinvent her life and her identity. And like me, she envisioned a better, elegant future for herself. Like me, she knew you had to have a vision. I was broke fearless, with nothing to lose, and my dream, more than anything, was to become anyone else other than who I was. Which, which again, in that, in their, in that little description, and her especially, gives one that sense of, of how the American character can go both sides. It's, I want to be this beautiful, wonderful person conning the world and maybe myself about who I am, and I'll be a con person in order to achieve that. Yeah, that's also interesting because that's a a justification, a self-justification that a lot of con artists use to make it seem a little better than it actually is. Oh, I just wanted a better life for myself. But you know what? So do a lot of other people who work hard for it and end up going to school and spending a lot of time to get that better life. Yeah, definitely. I want to play another clip uh, from one of my favorite films from 1973. Uh, This is George Roy Hill's The Sting. Paul Newman and Robert Redford are con men planning a big con to get revenge on a mobster who killed their friend. Can't do it alone, you know. Takes a mob of guys like you and enough money to make them look good. I know plenty of guys. It's not like playing winos in the street. You can't outrun them. I never played for no winos. You gotta keep his con even after you take his money. He can't know you took him. You're scared of him. 
Right down to my socks, Buster. You're talking about a guy who'd kill a grifter over a chunk of money, wouldn't support him for two days. You're gonna go for him. I just don't want a hothead looking to get even coming back halfway through saying it ain't enough because it's all we're going to get. Uh, that was Paul Newman and Robert Redford in The Sting. Such a good movie. Uh, such a good movie. Um, and um, remind listeners what The oh, Sting so, is. So it's was. a wire fraud. So basically you you tell people that you have an in at the Telegraph. Um, and so you get you get results of the of the Telegraph news a little bit earlier. Um, and so they think that they're going to have an edge in placing bets on races or whatnot. Um, and so you end up losing money because you think – that you have an edge and there's really no edge. And that movie was actually also based on a real con, the Gondorf Brothers wire fraud. Right. It was the biggest wire fraud of the 20th century. It's interesting. It makes me want to see it again because I hadn't – because, of course, in the modern day, today, that the, the, this high-frequency f- trading is based on the real version of getting information a fraction of a second. Exactly. So, so today something like the wire yeah. um, isn't that far removed from the truth. Yeah. So – when we hear about most real crimes, we go, oh, that's terrible. Oh, that thief, that burglar, that robber. Con artists, we cut out a special exemption for them, yeah. right? They're, they're, they're cooler. And, and why is that? Well, I think for two reasons. First, it's not usually a violent crime. So it's easier to glamorize because they're not out in the street killing people. Um, instead, they're not often committing a crime. And it is artistry. So they don't take things. You give it to them. And the other reason, I think, is because we see it as a victimless crime, because we blame the victim. Well, we do because we we blame them for being conned in a lot of cases. Not necessarily, oh, you're, you're stupid, you deserved it, but if their greed led them to, to fall for the con. We think that they're greedy, but when we see it, look at it from the outside, we're very objective and we say this is too good to be true. When it's happening to us, it's never too good to be true. It's just good. It's just good. It's awesome. Right. Yay, I deserve this. And so all of a sudden, you're not objective when it comes to yourself. And so you look at that return and you say, see, I knew I was picking a good investment. You know, I knew what I was doing. Right. Um, so we have this president. <laughs> uh, 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 Donald Trump is often colloquially called a con man, has been before he ran for president. Um, I may have done it once or twice myself in years past. Is he, by your um, definition, a con man? Yes. Um, so. Good. Well, we're done here. <laughs> Talk about that. So I think that the thing that really sets apart most politicians, because a lot of people will tell me, well, aren't all politicians con artists? I say, well, if you say that, then the word con artist stops meaning anything. So I think, no, they're not all con artists. Here's the difference. Con artists are people who take advantage of your confidence for their own personal ends. And those ends have nothing to do with what they're saying. Whereas politicians, sure, they might lie a little bit. They're a little narcissistic. Exactly. They can be Machiavellian. All yeah, they things. can be all of those things. But ultimately, they believe in what they're doing um, to some extent. And sure, they might not be able to give you kind of the health reform exactly the way they promised, but they're trying to reform health in some in some respect. They're politicians. Although doesn't uh, President Donald Trump uh, count as a politician now since he's president? I don't think Donald Trump is a politician. He doesn't care about the office. He cares about Donald Trump. Um, And 
if you look at what he says to different people, you start realizing that he's doing exactly what con artists do, which is case the people, figure out what do you want the most, and I'm going to sell it to you. You know, I'm going to give you the story that you personally want. And I don't care if that story is completely different from the story I'm giving someone else. Everyone gets their version of the truth. Um, that's what con artists are brilliant at doing. Donald Trump is brilliant at doing that. It's like he read the con artist playbook, except there is no playbook. You know, it's all instinct. He he feels it. Yeah. I don't even know if he does it consciously, but he knows how to do it. Uh, Maria, thank you uh, so much for coming in and talking about cons and grifts. Thank you so much for having me, Kurt. Maria Konnikova is host of the new podcast, The Grift. She's also the author of the book, The Confidence Game. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Daniel Guimet. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. And our intern, evidently for eternity, is... Max Gibson. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. Because this is the place in our hearts, in our homes. Because this is the place that's a part of our bones. Because Manchester gives us such strength from the fact that this... is the place we should give something back always remember never forget forever Manchester choose love Manchester thank you PRI Public Radio International Next time in Studio 360's American Icons. Ricky, can I be in the show? The show that invented TV as we know it. I love Lucy. This stuff is in the DNA and in the brain of every comedy writer. Lucy was always about desire. She wanted to do what she wanted to do. That's a seditious act. I love Lucy and the birth of American TV. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.